Hello everyone and welcome to the 32nd episode of Encrypted. Encrypted is a weekly podcast dedicated to guiding you through the blockchain and crypto universe. The 32nd episode is very special because we have created something called the Decrypt Hour. Decrypt Hour is a community event here based in Dubai to gather blockchain enthusiasts, evangelists and adopters and actually builders of this amazing ecosystem to come together um, to talk about the relevant aspects and relevant topics within the blockchain space. And the three topics that we actually decided to talk about was blockchain in the GCC, future adoption of blockchain and crypto, as well as blockchain startups investments. And this was decided by the community. And we're super happy to have done our first community event, which was really a really great sort of interaction between the panelists as well as the audience. So we really hope you enjoy this podcast. And please don't forget to rate and subscribe this episode. Thank you very much. This is the first meetup that we've done as Encrypted. Um, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Ahmed Bilaghi. I'm one of the founders and co-hosts of Encrypted, which is a podcast that is dedicated to blockchain and cryptocurrency. So the format of this, I'm going to quickly give an introduction about Encrypted. Then I'll hand it over to my co-host Faisal, who will basically explain what Decrypt Hour is, and then we'll have an introduction with the guests. Um, and one more thing, we don't want this to be a one-way thing. So if anybody has any questions or wants to make any statement at any time, just like, just go ahead, all right? So who are we? So when I think of Encrypted, it's basically to really educate, inspire, sort of a movement to build the digital economies of the future. And digital economies, for me, is sort of the intersection of um, AI, IoT, blockchain, all these emerging technologies out there. And the idea is that these digital economies of the future will pave the way of, you know, of how we will actually you know, live and interact, M machine to machine, human to machine, and human to human. So, and the idea is, well, the, the crux of this is to sort of educate the mainstream about the virtues of blockchain and crypto. So yes, we've done 31 episodes so far, and we've had a load of entities from the private sector, public sector, um, and startups as well, just so that we could have a, a variety of factors and a variety of sort of insights into what is going on in the ecosystem here. And without further ado, I'll give it back to Faisal. First of all, again, thank you very much for coming and being part of this. A bit of background about myself, uh, I'm Ahmed's co-host. I've been in the tech digital realm for about 11 years now. Got into blockchain around two years ago with a couple of things on my own and then joined Smart Dubai as a product manager for the blockchain portfolio as well as the trust services. So the whole idea behind Decrypt Hour is what Ahmed said, you know, we wanted to engage the community. We wanted to engage all different sorts of people or stakeholders within the domain just to have a healthy conversation because this is at the core of whatever we're doing, we're trying to aspire conversation, we're trying to create synergies between different startup, government entities, NGOs, and any kind of ideas in the domain. So I'll quickly introduce like how the flow will go. As you know, when you registered, you signed up for, or you picked up your three main topics that you want us to discuss. So whatever we're discussing is basically the majority of the votes, so we have consensus within the room here. The three topics that were part of the selection is the blockchain and crypto landscape in the GCC. And we kind of winded the, the scope because we believe that there are a couple of interesting things going on around GCC. The state and future of adoption of blockchain, as we know that this is one of the biggest issues or challenges facing blockchain, is the adoption. And finally, investments in startups that have to do around blockchain. Without further ado, I'll let my esteemed guests introduce themselves. 
Dr. Marwan, who I think doesn't need any introduction, <laughs> but yeah, please. So skip, right? <laughs> so uh, anybody that doesn't know me, raise your hand. <laughs> okay, then I uh, just skip. <laughs> okay. People know that you're Satoshi. Okay, so people, <laughs> that, the, for the interest of the audience at home, not the people here, do a, a brief introduction. So I'm a CEO of Blockchain Center, as well as Director of Information Services at Dubai Electronic Security Center. What I try to do through my different roles is encourage people to learn and educate themselves about technology in general and blockchain in particular, because I, I believe that blockchain technology has not re really reached its uh, potential. We haven't even attacked even a very small percentage of that. I think the room for growth for blockchain technology is huge, and we are uh, just touching the tip of the iceberg. And I think even not only for financial services, but across all sectors, we have a huge potential for blockchain technology. Great. My name is Talal Tabbaa. I don't wear as many hats as uh, Dr. Marwan. I'm Orshma. Uh, <laughs> you, you raise money, you got to do what you got to do. <laughs> exactly. So that's why I went back home and got made sure that I wear my company's polo shirt. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Gibral Network. We're a blockchain development company uh, based out of Switzerland. And I recently moved to the UAE around six months ago to register as part of the DIFC FinTech Accelerator. And our focus is mainly on moving traditional financial assets onto the Ethereum blockchain. So that starts with cash, and then we do commodities and debt as well. And I have to agree with Dr. Moran that we haven't touched the tip of the iceberg yet. Um, if you think globally, what blockchain implementations are live and up and running and really adding value or improving processes. Bitcoin is probably the only one. So yeah, thank you for having me as well. No, thank you for sure. coming. Pleasure. Anything you'd like to add before we start? So yeah, one, once again, if you guys really want to sort of say anything, ask questions, make a, a statement, it's all cool. We have Vipin at the back who's got a mic. He'll give it to anyone who wants to say something. I could also give it to somebody sort of nearby. It's not a problem. So yeah. Yeah, so please keep it as interactive as possible. We don't want this to be like panelists asking questions and you hearing them. Just cut us off, ask whatever questions. One more thing as well, if you would take the mic, just say your name and company. Because yeah. all of this is recorded, by the way. We're going to publish it as our next episode. But be careful what you say. Yes, <laughs> also be careful. You, I mean, you could give a wrong name as well. It's fine. And if you say anything that you regret saying for whatever reason, let us know, please. Yeah, we can edit that. Yeah. <laughs> That's the whole point. It's not really live. <laughs> well, we, we have it live with, with yeah, Prem. <laughs> exactly. It is immutable. <laughs> yeah, mutable, yeah. Okay, so starting off with this first topic, I'm going to start with, a, I believe, a tough question, and you can be as honest as possible. Are private blockchains even a thing? <laughs> so we build on public net Ethereum, mm -hmm. so actions speak louder than words. Uh, but at the same time, I also think that private blockchains are a thing. And the reason why I say that is a purist Bitcoin maximalist mentality says that blockchains only work when you have cryptography, decentralization, and basically no permissioned structure, where in reality each could serve a different purpose. Let's say you wanted to use, a example, take an example of a shipping company that wants to track the logistics value chain from the beginning to end. That doesn't make sense to do on a public blockchain. 
So there's some use cases that make more sense to be done on a private blockchain. But then again, there's a fine line between a private blockchain and just a normal database. I could tell you from our experience, we've sat down and seen projects where they want to do something by placing it on chain, but in reality, you could do it on Excel or Google Sheets. Uh, not everything, like blo private blockchains work for specific use cases, but, not, but they're definitely a thing. They're there. Okay. Doctor, anything uh, I, there? I think I don't want to go into a lot of details, but just speaking on the surface, because if you get into the details, you have to take each case by itself. So for public blockchain, I think the use cases are cases where the ecosystem is contained. Right? You want trust between the members, but nobody wants to take the onus of doing the whole system and maintenance and that kind of stuff. You want to create some kind of a consortium where people have the rights to write to the database. You trust, in the party trust each other, or they want to not trust each other, but trust the transactions in a certain way that they can take ownership of every action they take or transaction they take. Especially in the cases, for example, of verifying documents and things like that, a closed ecosystem makes sense. But in the cases where you want to transfer value from one entity to another and you want to open it up for people to come into the system and have like a token economy and things like that, it makes no sense to do it in a closed system. And that way, like the case of Bitcoin, you cannot do a closed Bitcoin system. It doesn't make sense. The whole, the whole incentive system of mining and that kind of stuff uh, cannot be done without having it to be public and equal competition for some people to, to, to mine that uh, coin and create the economy. So, like I said, like there's no size fits all, but both of them make sense. Uh, some people, of course, like the doubters or the, the uh, purists will say there's no such thing as private blockchain. Uh, but uh, there's another use case for that, which is learning. If you want to learn, mm -hmm. uh, you do either a testnet or you do a private blockchain just to get your hands dirty. And this is one of the approaches we did here in the OE. For most of the government department, we let them play in a sandbox, yeah. uh, you know, to test out the technology without going and committing to, you know, a, a public blockchain. What about the audience? I'm not sure about the level of understanding of technicalities, but by a show of hand, do you agree that private blockchains are a thing? Oh, wow. Okay, we've got... Okay. Can we hear a perspective? Yeah, sure, somebody random. Good afternoon. This is Prem from Bitcoin Magazine. I've got a question for you and, and a perspective, basically, first of all, uh, about blockchain. So we speak about blockchain, but um, the economy around blockchain uh, only started evolving uh, when big data or data came in. Now, looking at blockchain, basically, I, I would like to talk about three pillars. One is, first of all, blockchain, sorry, uh, big data, which has come in in the last um, uh, five to seven years. Now, the the second pillar, which I see is basically happening, is blockchain, uh, which is basically, uh, in layman terms, a, a database with a security level. Um, but the third uh, pillar I would like to talk is about tokenization. I feel that oh, if you use a blockchain, it comes automatic that somewhere down the line you'll be using some kind of tokenization mechanism. So when we talk about a private uh, 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 blockchain, you know, is there tokenization involved in it or not? Mm -hmm. um, I feel when it's not there, it's not, you know, really the max using the maximum uh, uh, efficiency of a blockchain. Mm -hmm. um, so my question to you guys, do you also see it like this. Thank you. Definitely. <laughs> um, first thing I'd ask is, what, how do you define tokenization? 
because some people always, or not some people, a lot of people in the industry confuse the difference between a security token and a tokenized security. So one is getting like a bond and representing it in a token format so that you're getting something that's analog and moving it digital or on-chain. And the other is doing a full issuance on-chain. So there's no uh, analog or paper-based security. Uh, it's similar to actually how the internet started. We used to have newspapers, and I used to get the information from newspapers and put it online. Now you get all the information online from the get-go. Anything that goes onto print will probably die out. But yeah, I, I do agree with the three pillars that you mentioned. Hey everyone, uh, my name is Aaron DeCruz from BuildSort. Um, I can give a little bit perspective on the on whether uh, permission blockchains are a thing. So with BuildSort is um, so in construction. It's a it's a software for construction. Um, not every construction company may want their their data, whether it be their contracts, because we'll use smart contracts, or their project data, that IP, to be on a, on a publicly accessible blockchain. So in those cases, a private blockchain may be uh, more appropriate. And also, um, it may be easier to implement such a, such a solution in GDPR regulations and such. Hello, uh, Jason King here from CGS Group. Um, just a thought on the, the, the discussion between the tokenized security and security tokens, I think one of the most important concepts, it, it disrupts the, the current um, scope of how companies are being valued and how um, investors around the world are participating into a company. So normally, before if we have a company, let's say Amazon, Apple, you know, you, you create, you know, maybe three guys start up a company, they have equity, and then eventually, you know, hopefully it goes public and more people are able to participate into the value growth of the underlying company. But I think Bitcoin has already demonstrated as one of the first, if you really think about it, like Bitcoin is not a security, but in a way, what is the only thing that captures the value of the underlying network, which is Bitcoins, right, issued by the Bitcoin uh, network. So essentially, if you say you own 1% of Bitcoin since Bitcoin was, you know, worth a million dollars market cap and today it's, you know, 100 billion, you essentially, you're believing that the future network is going to be valued based on the usage. And in a way, you're really participating in a decentralized company without creating a legal framework. So Bitcoin is not necessarily incorporated nor owned by anyone, but it's actually being held by the owners of Bitcoin. So I think that's one big aspect of what you know a lot of ICOs and projects try to capture that same, but fail to um, sort of capture the essence of what made Bitcoin successful in the first place. So I wanted to get your perspective on, so Dr. Moran, you're working closely with governments, you're working closely with um, corporates and banks. What is their attitude toward sort of public networks? Uh, have they even dabbled into it? I mean, you know, of course, they've, some of them might have done POCs with private networks. Maybe you could share some on that. But what, are, what is their perspective on, on public networks specifically? <laughs> and, and how do you kind of say to them, I don't care what your opinion is, but Bitcoin and Ethereum make sense? Hmm. Like, how, how do you know? Hey, you have to pick your battles, first okay. of all. First, Jason, very interesting point. Uh, I do agree that the way that companies are formed is was definitely changed by Bitcoin, but it's still not something that's science today. Today, if you have an EBITDA of a company, you take a multiplier, there's like proven ways of valuating a company where the money uh, velocity theory is still not proven. So back to your question on banks and corporates, 
you do find a couple of people within the bank that have crypto or have tried out tried reading about blockchain and those are your champions these are the people that you need to empower give them information so that they can flex on the rest of the employees within the banks and support your project but reality is you'll always find people in the risk and compliance department that are say yeah anti money laundry risk so it is definitely an up uphill struggle if you look at uh, b2b tech sales in general the turnaround time is from 3 to 18 months uh, when you add crypto to that or blockchain to that then that obviously has uh, an effect on, on how quick you can turn around the project. Uh, we were lucky with Al-Hilal Bank that the COO, the digital transformation lead, uh, they were fully up to speed. Like you could put them instead of us and they'd, they'd be able to, to present what blockchains are. So it de really depends on the type of organization and how dinosaur they are. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, just to add to what Talal said, uh, the banks over here are very forward looking. Uh, the, but again, they are risk-oriented organizations. So uh, one of the things we discussed earlier, we had a, an earlier panel with the guys representing banks uh, and uh, auditors. And the problem is not the, in the understanding of the banks of what the technology is and what the potential is. The problem is the ecosystem. They have always uh, uh, correspondence banking. And there, uh, there's a lot of banks here in the regions, and I don't want to name names, that uh, almost lost their correspondence uh, relationship because they adapt into blockchain ecosystems, especially public ones like Ripple and, and others. I don't want to name names. Sorry, I mentioned Ripple. <laughs> but this is the problem that you have. It's, you are not an isolated entity. Banks are not isolated. They have to have an ecosystem to function. Banks without correspondence are worth nothing, you know? Mm -hmm. So that's the thing that, that, that un unfortunate in the in banking ecosystem. But I think to also think that uh, Cryptocurrencies where you know close all banks very soon is gonna be thinking very naively. You know, mm -hmm. we have to understand both realities and both extremes. You know, the banks will function in their ecosystem, and then we'll have an alternative economy like a cryptocurrency based and things like that. And those will struggle until we find a common ground. And in some cases, some economies and some cities in the world, we have that ecosystem. In Dubai, we, we strive to be one of those ecosystems, but we try to, as much as possible to eliminate the risk or lower the risk as much as possible, where we make it a pleasant environment to operate in with banks, with crypto, you know, but it's not going to be a very easy journey. I, I wanted to um, try and um, spice it up by saying something controversial. So typically in, in Dubai, like you have you have the government and then you have the financial sector. Um, traditionally, the financial sector has been copying sort of the DIC, the DIC AGM have traditionally copied um, UK law or sort of law from, from the Western countries. But when it comes to sort of tech stuff like AI um, and blockchain with no crypto, then you basically see that, you know, Smart Dubai, DFA, all the government entities who are not involved in the financial ecosystem, they're very forward thinking into how they could bring technology. Um, and I feel that there's a huge disconnect between what technology can enable, but also what fintech can also enable as well. And so traditionally, you're going to have financial regulation, um, which is always spearheaded by New York, London, Hong Kong, then this region and DCC can't, I, I don't know if I should say this, but will it, you know, not a big guarantee that it can actually leapfrog ahead and make the best, in, you know, regulations in the world, right? I mean, I feel that, 
you know, the DIC or AGM might, you know, copy what London and New York might actually um, confirm in a years or two time, right? Um, I don't know what you guys think about that when it comes to GCC. If you if you have that sort of same, well, I definitely have an opinion on that. But let, <laughs> let have Dr. Marwan start. It's the first time he forward. <laughs> so uh, uh, I'll tell you from my limited perspective. This is my personal opinion. It has nothing to do with uh, my position in the government or then the blockchain center. Is that uh, the banks and the financial institutions will come around? Uh, it is only a matter of education and awareness. And uh, like I said, we are not uh, in silo of the global system. And the global system will also come around. We like to show people that we take the first step. We like to show people that we are more, uh, you know, adventurous. We like to race before everyone else. But can we do that in the financial realm? Yes, that's we can. The... I think uh, ADGM took the first leap. And I think that's a very positive uh, step. I think the IFC also, as an appetite, has an appetite for this and will do it eventually. We don't know how fast, but like uh, I, I have a company now in the IFC, and they were, you know, in the past very, uh, you know, tried to stay away from blockchain-related companies, but now they're incorporating at least in the fintech hive blockchain, and this is one of the key areas they're actually incorporating. Mm -hmm. uh, Talal is moving there. There's, I had three or four people here. They already opened uh, the FinTech Hive as well. So everyone is moving there. Blockchain companies are getting into there. And we're in the consultancy area. And we're consulting uh, FinTech companies as well. And uh, like I said, the first step was to open in mainland Dubai with its blockchain center. But now we're diving into the FinTech area as well, which is, I think, is a very good potential for growth in the upcoming period. Um, all right. First of all, the New York example is a very bad example because they messed it up big time with the bit license. Uh, if you look at Shapeshift, Kraken, anyone that used to work in New York just bounced because they had the crappiest regulations of all time. The guy that wrote the regulations actually went and opened a consulting company that helps people navigate those regulations. Uh, that's, yeah. Uh, that's that's about the New York example. Yeah, so New York is a bad example. UK Wales is a very good example. Um, but the reality is that the region historically has been followers and lot, not leaders. This is the unfortunate reality. However, over the past decade, I'd say, Dubai and other countries in or cities or countries in the GCC, such as Bahrain, uh, have taken a leap forward with rolling out crypto regulations. The Central Bank of Bahrain is one of the first central banks to properly issue uh, clear guidelines. Not only that, I think the advantage in Bahrain, even though we don't operate there, is that all the different government entities are on one page. That might be easier to do in Bahrain because it's smaller scale. But is there a big enough market? Like, no, does it make no, no. business if, sense? If you can operate from Bahrain and target a larger target addressable market, then yes. But uh, going back to Dr. Marwan's point, it's possible to be crypto and compliant. Um, I'm the co-founder of a crypto and blockchain company, and we did an ICO out of Switzerland. We registered a DIFC entity under the Innovation Testing License Program. As long as we provided them with sufficient documentation that we have the no objection letter from FINMA, your licensed financial intermediary, your AML procedures are in place, um, and we've done it both with uh, ADGM and with DIFC. Uh, that's not something that was possible. Like if you told anyone that you're going to register a crypto company in the UAE three years ago, they would have told you, yeah, you'd probably end up with a CID. But hey, you, now you have several companies coming in and ADGM are in the process of issuing licenses for 
some of the world's biggest crypto exchanges. Interesting. Okay. Um, we've talked a lot about the financial domain and so on. And I want to stay there, maybe bring in one of the, the entities that Talal mentioned, which is the central bank. And in the UAE, we've seen a lot of, I would say, a different hat that the central bank is starting to wear and starting to communicate, especially with the appointment of the new governor. So my question is, what role does a central bank play when it comes to blockchain? Will it just stay in the regulatory aspect because we're seeing them now moving into cross-border payment processing and trying to, to, to cover not only the GCC but even the Arab Pan and so on. So what role does it play and how important is it to have central bank on board? Because as far as the banks are concerned, that's the first question they will ask. What is central bank saying? I'll tell you from my experience because I had a. Again, you can YouTube this. It's in Arabic, unfortunately, for the non-Arabic speakers. But there's an hour-long episode in uh, Dubai Television um, about my license, which was for OTC uh, trading and DMCC, and they had a, a regulator from the central bank, and then they had somebody representing SCA, which is Securities and Commodities Authority in the UAE, and they were discussing basically how did I get my license, which was uh, for uh, over-the-counter trading of crypto, and why didn't the uh, central bank or Securities Commodities Authority close me down, basically. And the central bank said, because we are, we are regulators for the banks, we do not regulate private businesses, that's out of our jurisdiction. Mm -hmm. And the SCA were saying, we are only responsible for issuance of, of uh uh, you know, legal tender and removal and things like that. Control of whatever is a legal tender in the UAE. And that's out of our jurisdiction as well. So the, the crypto was out of ju jurisdiction of both the central bank and the SCA. And me being uh, licensed in a DMCC zone, they couldn't even enforce anything because I was not in mainland Dubai. So the onus was in that case under uh, the Dubai Multi-Commodity Center and their auditors, their regulators, and their regulatory body and their regulatory law as well. So you have to really understand the complexity of, of the each use case for crypto. If you are an ICO, uh, you cannot be based in Dubai because you're going to issue what can be considered as tender or, or token or something of value, and that is illegal in the UAE until now, until SCA, uh, which is the Securities Commodities Authority, they said they will have a regulation for ICO. They announced that, and they said it's going to be mid this year, which is 2019. We haven't heard uh, much news about it, but there's going to be some news coming out soon, I've heard. What, what's the news? <laughs> there are some, like, for example, there's a... Uh, something called Aber, which is going to be a cryptocurrency, they say, I don't know, between UAE and Saudi, and that's going to be announced. The details are going to be announced, I think, mid-April. That's an exclusive, guys, by the way. That's not exclusive. <laughs> <laughs> so that should be announced uh, pretty soon, so in a couple of weeks uh, or so. And uh, by June, July, something like this, we should have something a bit clearer on how we stand when it comes to issuance of crypto assets and things like that uh, from here, from the region, and the regulation around it and what, what due diligence has to be done for KYC and ML and things like that. But I think that doesn't stop uh, companies like Jibril from operating because they're based out of Switzerland, but having an entity here, or technology arm even sometimes here in the UAE and Dubai based out of either DIFC or mainland even in Dubai.
Sorry, ju just to introduce the question, which I want to reflect back to the panel. The answer, whether it's the central bank or the regulator or anyone else, ADGM, DIFC, is a balance between what's in it for them to meet their mission and what risk they run by doing that. So there is a competitive position to some extent. You have a choice whether you go to DIFC or ADGM or both, and then ADGM will position with respect to that. But if either jurisdiction gets into trouble for not having proper KYC, that threatens existing business. Similarly for the central bank, I remember trying to set up a mutual fund in NBD before it became Emirates NBD in 2004. We wrote to ESCA, we wrote to the central bank, there was no mutual fund law. So they both said, well, we kind of are concerned with this, we're not quite sure what to do about it. That wasn't that long ago and it got done. So the question I want to reflect back is in relation to blockchain, crypto and everything else, what's the case that the companies, the advocates can make to any of these organizations for them to see the benefit in furthering their mission? And that's okay. always an important question to ask. Yeah, so, so we've done a lot of those. So as Blockchain Center, I've done, uh, even block, before Blockchain Center, by the way, I've done a, a day-long uh, awareness session for all the regularities, regulatory uh, bodies in the UAE, including SCA and uh, Central Bank, including local authorities like Supreme Legislative Council here in the UAE, and uh, other you know, lawyers and police forces and things like that. And I continue to do that on a regular basis uh, out of the blockchain center or in my own personal capacity as a consultant or, or, or whatever on those entities. And this is an ongoing thing. You know, the, it is very hard to uh, convince all the layers, for example, in the central bank to do something. You might convince the young people, you might convince the top management, but there's always... Uh, complete pictures that they have to achieve. And with any new legislation, uh, you need to really keep on going, keep on trying and trying and trying to push it through. And sometimes you will get through and you get the right momentum to actually get things going. The question perhaps goes wider than just here. What's the killer app for this globally that will convince people? It feels like we're at the phase of the internet, people putting uh, a few things up. When do we go to 3.0? What's really going to swing it? I know this is speculation. Yeah, it's momentum. End of the day, momentum. Um, my opinion, humble opinion, end of the day, momentum. You know, you, we have, if you, if you don't try, you will never get to that point where we have, you know, uh, the over-tipping point. Uh, projects like Jibreel uh, Network, projects like... Uh, I don't want to miss the names. <laughs> Just Good listening. marketing, huh? Well, thank you. Uh, you know, they 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 push the envelope. You need to you need a lot of people to push the envelope for it to be you know uh, to reach that momentum where it becomes the norm, and then everyone tips over and then uh, understands the technology as the norm. You know, nobody and the blockchain technology is not visible. It's not very you know in your face. You know, it's all done in the background, but it enables a lot of things to happen that were not you know uh, possible before. Uh, I want to go back to Faisal's question and challenge it a bit. You're saying, should central banks regulate crypto? And that is a very open-ended question that can't be answered directly because, number one, crypto or digital assets is just a new way of representing assets. For example, if you have a gold-backed token, then obviously it should fall under ESCA because it's a commodity. If you have an equity IPO for a new company on NASDAQ Dubai, then that's an equity and it's regulated as such. Bitcoin, a new type of asset, can be considered in DMCC because it's still something that's unknown and that's where the concept of regulatory arbitrage comes into play. Uh, the concept of a utility token, for example, 
can't yet be regulated in anywhere except for Switzerland and Singapore, I think. But that will not help in adoption or mass scaling, correct? It has to go out of the free zones and out of Agreed. the... Agreed. So, for example, a, a, a stable coin mm -hmm. would be regulated by the central bank. Yeah. Uh, the, the shoot, maybe. The, even. Uh, so Aber, a lot of people think that it's going to be a cryptocurrency where you go use it to pay for retail payments. It's not the case. It will be used for interbank settlement, yeah. uh, which today is pretty manual. Yeah, true. So I run a company called Crypto PR, gladly, proudly established in Dubai. And um, now we do PR globally in different geographies. According to the recent update from JP Morgan that they launched JPM coin, mm -hmm. what do you think of the point of making it really putting it into a retail use? Do you think that people would be, like get into you know making? Do you think that JP Morgan will make this put it into retail use? I think retail? retail is missing the point completely. What JPM coin, what Facebook coin, what all these big conglomerates are doing is they sit on piles of cash that can cover this whole building. And what do you do when you have a lot of cash? You use it to get more cash. So the concept of fractional reserve banking, these large corporates are essentially trying to act as central banks. Because today, Facebook has euros, dollars, pounds, uh, Iraqi dinar, if you want, they also have, they pretty much have a lot of money, right? Most than most countries. So what they'll do is they'll have that reserve in the bank and then they'll issue new Facebook coins or JPM coins and essentially double the cash that they have. Yeah. But I think for JPM coin, they made it very specific. They said there are three things yeah. they're going to be doing. And those three things do not touch retail. It's all internal. It's all internal with different big partners like Apple and Facebook, like you said. Um, I think one unit in JP Morgan generates... Um, I know it's nine million or billion, like I, I can't remember, but there's one unit that generates that amount of money and they're just saying we could probably generate more just through blockchain, but doing the same activity and through this JPM coin. I was, I was talking with Jason, I, I was sitting with him uh, a couple of days ago, we, we were discussing the tokeniza uh, tokenization and uh, how um, like this is going to be like a trillion dollar industry. So everything that could, like everything, anything, any asset in the world could be tokenized. I just want you like to tell the people here about the thing that you told me uh, about the tokenization. Well, what did you tell them? Back to the. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're gonna we're gonna talk about one one, one interesting concept. I think um, that that's been that's been you know prevalent in since the introduction of Bitcoin and, and you know, blockchain technology, one of the biggest concerns, I think, for um, you know, anyone who is in compliance from the banking, from, from the regulatory or even government perspective, one of the biggest concerns was you know, the, the KYC, the AML, right? Because uh, here's a question for the panel. I want to hear you guys' thoughts on it. Do you think, because we talk about money laundering, do you think money laundering exists at the level of central banks? Does that concept exist? Okay, and I have very strong opinions on that, so can maybe you, I'll leave it to Dr. Maro. Can you just re rephrase that and saying, does money laundering exist in central banks currently? The concept of money laundering, yeah. at a certain point, does it exist at the level of central banks? Uh, can we go move? off the record here? Yeah, off the record. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, Switzerland started as a financial hub because they agreed to hold Hitler's gold. 
Hong Kong started as a financial hub because they were housing the funds from selling opium in Asia. So basically, yes, it's uh, humans are crap. That has always been the case, and that's always be the case. Uh, if you have a new technology that allows you to cut through, let's say, standard processes, people will use it. Uh, but yeah, to answer your question, it's a global phenomena, and the U.S. dollar is the world's largest medium of, of money laundry. But that doesn't mean that the U.S. dollar is the, at fault. It's just human nature. And blockchain does have an advantage in traceability and auditability, for sure. So just going back to the point about JP Coin and other things, if we separate things like um, securitized assets on a token, it's just as a way of giving access to existing asset classes. Um, and utility tokens are utility tokens. I mean, you can call them air miles. But realistically, what's really revolutionary, and the question I want to reflect back to the panel is, whether it's Facebook or anyone else, what's your view on private money, which is essentially what we're talking about here. So even when you had fractional reserve banking, your current account is a liability on your bank, but in a currency issued and controlled by a central bank, and it's a lender of last resort, and there are all sorts of measures in place. What we're talking about now is private money competing with public money in the same way that private airlines started competing with what used to be government airlines and those of us old enough to remember when you wanted a phone, you went to the government and they put a phone in your house. Now we're very used to private phones, private phone companies going across borders. The real innovation potentially here is what form does private money take and who benefits in the contrast of Bitcoin not really having an issuing authority, but maybe having its own problems versus do I, would I want to, having given my data to Facebook, to also leave my money with them, versus a central bank? It's a really relevant question these days. Can I just clarify, when you say private money, do you basically mean like private money, like a Facebook type coin, or a decentralized, or you know, Facebook slash Ripple, or a decentralized form of that crypto? Centralized is not even private. Yep, so that's ultimate public in a way. Ultimate, okay. <laughs> if you think about it. But when you say things. private, you're saying like Facebook coin, Ripple, these types of, okay. Actually, yeah. They are, quote unquote, the liability of a private company, which we are using in exchange. Yeah. And those are the real key distinctions between something like Bitcoin, which you, I wouldn't call private, it's really genuinely public in a sense, with all its own problems and issues. And how do you get a central bank for money like that? because central banks were invented for a reason, to prevent crises and all sorts, and private money where you know, people can complain about what the Fed does, but then there is Zuckerberg, and I, you know, <laughs> where are we on this? <laughs> Go on, no, no, no. I'll just give a just very short answer to that. I think, end of the day, that it's the market that's going to dictate what's going to happen. You know, if, if JP Morgan issues whatever money and there's no ecosystem and there's nobody using it, it, it will lose all value related to it, you know? Like you said, it's a huge liability also of the risk appetite of the people involved. Like he said, now there are three or four partners, but if it was more customer-facing or uh, ecosystem doesn't make sense, then it will lose all value. But if it was just for transfer of value between you know, known uh, partners, then it will serve as means of electronic exchange, whether it is a, a token or not, you know? So yeah, that's my, my answer. And I think, end of the day, like I said, the economy will prevail, or, or the economics of it. I think if you're acting like a bank, you should be regulated as such. If you are providing facilities, if you are providing loans, uh, then you should be regulated as a bank and have all the requirements that go along with the Basel Convention, uh, AML standards. So one of the most abused areas is points. 
point systems uh, because they are technically money, but not regulated as money. So I do think that in the US, at least, the Federal Reserve will not allow private institutions to walk the way they want to walk unless they follow their own rules. Uh, the main reason the U.S. has been able to stay powerful is because of its control over the dollar. That's uh, not something they'll give away lightly. Okay. In the interest of time, I'll move on to the next topic. But of course, please keep the flow of questions coming. The second topic is around like the, the future of adoption, which we touched upon uh, for some cases. But I would like to know in terms of, I mean, we all know what happened to the crypto market, the wipeout, the bloodbath, some of us more than others. But I mean, where are we when it comes to technology? Where are we on the Gartner cycle? Have we crossed the path of hype and buzz? And now where we're really getting the real use cases out there? Or are we still, are we still there's a lot of pump going on? Or where are we? So I think the pump that's in the past few days, that's artificial pump, I think everyone <laughs> agrees. But uh, yeah, we're in the slump now. Technology-wise? Technology-wise, I think there, there is some momentum, but uh, value-wise, I think we're in the slump right now. Okay. But that's not a bad thing, to be honest. It's very healthy, like, uh, it's a very typical answer. <laughs> but I think the real projects and the real use cases are coming slowly but surely. Mm -hmm. uh, I think in the utility token era, where everyone was talking about utility, but nobody was, you know, understanding what utility yeah. token is, and no real utility tokens were there. It was a disaster, to be honest, and everybody knew it was a disaster, but they're making money. <laughs> Nobody cares if it's a disaster or not, because the value kept on going up. But of course, uh, everybody knew it was going to come crashing down, but it was only a matter of time. I think it's the same true right now. Everybody knows it's going to go up, but we don't know how long and how fast. But we know it's going to be definitely slower than the, the pump that we had before. There's a very big misconception between crypto market cap, whatever that metric means, and technology progress. Yeah. So, and I'll tell you as Gibril, we were number two or number three last month in terms of GitHub commits. Mm. One of the top three companies in the world in terms of how much development we've done. We have 26 full-time guys, or the guys and girls. Wow. Uh, for a company of our small size, we're still a startup, to be one of the top GitHub commits is a disaster. Uh, if you look at the GitHub of the Ethereum Foundation, which we are building on, the number of commits is insanely poor. So what I'd say is we are still a very, very, very long time away from commercial production-ready solutions. Mm -hmm. You think we haven't even hit the real the time high, or yeah. we're, we're, we're before maturity at the bottom? No, on the way down still. And oh, we'll, yeah. On the way down, we'll bottom out, and then you'll see, in the coming couple of years, you'll see enterprise blockchain adoption. And then once it reaches the mass scale, that could be anywhere from five to 10 years down the line. Uh, again, the very famous Bill Gates quote, or I think it was Bill Gates, that we always overestimate the effect technology is gonna have in the coming three years, but we underestimate the effect it will have in six years. I might have butchered the numbers, but you get the point. <laughs> but what do you think needs to be in place to accelerate that? I mean, in terms, we're seeing a lot of momentum, like Dr. Marwan said, when it comes to people pushing the envelope, startups getting into it. Even now, the big giants are like pushing it because they want to capture more share and more share. What really needs to be put in place? Is that healthy, whatever we're going through, or 
we need to change the dynamics. Of course, it's healthy because the only way you'll figure it out is through iteration. Mm -hmm. But what the industry really needs is actual. So, for example, BBVA and Santander conducted a syndicated loan using smart contracts and blockchain. These are the types of implementations that you need that actually show that using this new system is way better than using a legacy system. But at the end of the day, there's there's a very important B2B book that my co-founder told me to read. It's called The Mom's Test. And it basically tells you how sometimes institutions don't want to change. Yani, I'll give you an example. Today, the bonds market is one of the largest financial markets in the world. 80% of bonds in the United States are still traded over the phone. You have a quotation going through Bloomberg and a swift transfer going somewhere else. It's insanely vague and it is fragmented. But when you speak to the banks, no one wants to change because that's how they make their margins. That's how they make their money. Mm -hmm. So you're essentially trying to sell the bank a solution that would cut his ability to make profits. Mm -hmm. The technology sometimes, the people that you want them to adopt, they don't want to adopt it. And one of the big banks here in the UAE is like, well, honestly, don't try. This is how we make our money. <laughs> and we don't, want, we don't want a transparent secondary market for securities. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree totally with you. I was just sharing a story earlier that I do OTC. I have an OTC license and DMCC. And uh, we were talking to a person who was into like technology and that kind of stuff. And he was telling me, OTC, so that means you take orders manually? I was like, yeah. And that's how we make big margins because the numbers are big. And they were like, that's not scalable. You need to be, you know, with the technology and that kind of stuff. I was like, I make, I make more money than, in the OTC than I, than I would be doing if I was doing exchange. You know, an exchange would be a much more overhead and much more investment in technology and that kind of stuff. But, you know, if you are making the money, if you are comfortable, like in the bonds market or the OTC market, it makes no sense to actually adopt technology because your margin is, you know, reduced. <laughs> like I said, uh, people are resistant to change if the money is coming in. So I totally agree with him. And in some sectors, we will not see technology adoption happening very fast. But in other sectors where scale plays a huge role, a network effect plays a huge role, this is where you want to really attack and get you know most of your profits based on the margin you make and the number of transactions and the network effect rather than huge transactions and you know uh, manual work, basically. Yeah, so I, to answer your question, let's go back to Amin's point, and we need a killer app. Like that's that's what we need. I mean, the, uh, I think I can't remember which VC it was, but there was a VC that redid a huge article um, about the infrastructure lifecycle. They were like, okay, what comes first, the infrastructure layer or the the application? And so and then they basically showed sort of a trend from the past hundred years in terms of tech developments, and they showed that you need a killer app before you can have an before you can have in infrastructure. Mm -hmm. So what that basically means is when the Wright brothers actually went out and made an airplane, you know, they made the airplane. But what was the infrastructure? It was the you know the airports, the runways and all of that. Right? Same thing with phones. You know, you could probably make a call from here to there, but you need actual sort of towers and everything for that infrastructure to be built out. So it could be built, built out on a massive scale. So we probably need a refined version of CryptoKitties, maybe cuter CryptoKitties, uh, I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah. But I, I just feel that we, we, we need a killer app that would basically wake the world up in, in terms of what this could potentially bring. Bitcoin. Yeah, Bitcoin is there, but it still hasn't garnered that same, you know, that it's gaining momentum, but not sort of the 
sort of not everyone's using it or using it on a daily basis. But the issue now, this is the biggest issue in most decentralized applications. You need gas, whatever that, like gas, which is, you know, Ethereum or gas of other, other tokens of blockchain networks. You need that prior to making a transaction on a decentralized application, even Bitcoin, for example, right? Bitcoin, you need Bitcoin to send Bitcoin. Now, this is uncommon for, you know, people outside this room, like probably everyone here knows about this, but... Yeah, I was just saying killer apps have a utility as well that people can feel in everyday life. So in, Bit in Bitcoin, if it's not going to be smoother payments or something, it's not going to happen. Exactly. Yet. Not going to happen? Ooh, if, <laughs> what's the app? What's the app? Escaping what's... capital controls. This is the biggest use case of Bitcoin. When you think, when the Venezuela issue happened and people were leaving Venezuela, people had gold, literal gold, but they couldn't take gold with them and travel outside the plane. If I was a Syrian refugee and I was leaving to Europe and I had... $10,000 worth of Bitcoin, I would have packed and bounced. If I have cash, they would have stripped me at the airport and I would have been... So your wealth no longer has to be geography specific if you have Bitcoin. But that means but, we need many sort of Syrias and many Venezuelans to happen for that. War is a pretty pros, growing business. And, and pros, <laughs> the pros and cons for the people who will enable the infrastructure. So for that to happen, who's going to have to enable that infrastructure? The central banks, and they're going to call it money laundering, not avoiding capital controls. True. Right. So th there's that interplay. But what happened with washing machines was people used to have light sockets. That was the initial application of electricity. Same idea. And then people would roll the washing machine to the center of the room and plug. And then eventually, as new houses were built, the sockets went in kind of in, into housing. But that's got to be something that gets acceptance as well. So the question always comes back. What other utilities are there? What's the utility for the users that will make it the killer? One person over there. Hey guys, my name is David. I'm with the Phantom Innovation Hub. I get the killer app, but sometimes I wonder whether it's literally just the onboarding and the ability to store cash in a crypto. Like, do we need more stable coins in different currencies so that when institutions come into crypto, they can also store them safely against a fiat or stable rather than worry about how do I get back out if I can't get back out because the banks may shut me down or I may not have a place to trade. So is the challenge for adoption more the ability of comfort for fiat on-ramping and storing than actually the app itself. Interesting. So, uh, I'll, I'll tell you from my perspective. So in the UAE, for example, there were no easy on-ramping, off-ramping solutions. So I started OTC business was for just that, for on-ramping people and off-ramping people for projects like, again, I'm plugging Jibril here, Jibril Network, where they raised a lot of money when in their uh, ICO and they wanted to cash that, that Ethereum or Bitcoin into UAE dirhams to pay the employees and things like that. And people who wanted to invest in ICOs at that area at that time to, uh, you know, buy UAE dirham, from UAE dirhams to, for example, Ethereum or Bitcoin to invest in cryptocurrency ecosystem at that time. So, and also there were a lot of other ecosystems like ATM, point of sale, and that kind of stuff. Those will help, but the, the, again, the appetite for the people and the awareness of the people of the existence of cryptocurrency, I think this is the biggest turtle. And this is where we try to grow the most. It is not only stable coins, stable coins help, it's not only the, the ecosystem for uh, on-ramping and off-ramping, but it's also utility in general. You know, people using it like people were mentioning here, do we use it on a daily basis, Bitcoin? Do you use other cryptocurrency on a daily basis? Even the people who are crypto enthusiasts don't use it right now in this 
kind of market on a daily basis. When the market hype was up and the ICOs were there, people were using it on a daily basis, you know. I, I think we need to come back to the same issue, which is awareness, you, using it. I remember even in the early days of crypto, I was a miner and I went to one of the conferences and I was basically just mining and keeping them. Because I started just before it hit 1,200 and I witnessed the crash, the first crash. So I was very, uh, you know, uh, reserved about spending Bitcoins. Then I went to a, one of the conferences, Rod, and the guy told me, so you're a miner and you're not spending. I was like, yeah, I'm not spending. He said, what are you doing then? You're not helping the ecosystem. What's the point of you making the money and keeping it? You should use it. You know, how do you get value from Bitcoin if you're not using it? And then, only then, at that time, I think Bitcoin was $400. I started using it. I started using it for buying within the ecosystem, buying other cryptocurrencies, and they were just coming out as, as, as Ethereum and things like that. So if you keep uh, holding and uh, hoarding your coins and not using them, not utilizing them, this will kill the ecosystem. And this is exactly what's happening right now. There's a lot of people in this room and outside this room and the whole podcast, you know, sphere, they have crypto, but they're not using it. They say, oh, well, the, the tomorrow's going to be $100 more. You know, why you guys... <laughs> you told us to hold. <laughs> yeah, you know. so, un unless it's staking, where you, like Tezos and other networks, where if you hold the tokens, it's actually not good for you. So you actually have to stake it in order to, to yeah, report. And I, do, I do staking right now. I don't do mining. I do staking as well. But still, end of the day, it's the utility that flourishes the system that brings it alive. It's more people coming in. It's those kind of things that uh, give value to the token. If you hold your money in your pocket and you never spend it, what's the money good for, you know? Doctor, it's, it's hodling, not holding. <laughs> I want to use my Jubal tokens, bro. Jcash.network. Oh, Jcash.network. You have to comment on the Amin's point on utility and the killer app. I do agree that Bitcoin was launched a while ago, so it's kind of underwhelming to see that there hasn't been something that has reached mass scale. But I do think that when that time comes, it will be programmatic money. So today, money is not programmatic, right? You can't embed specific logic where money acts on predefined metrics. Today, when you pay your electricity bill to Diwa, they send you a monthly balance, you pay it. In the future, you'll open the light, close it, you pay a micro payment using that. Uh, that's just a stupid example, yeah? but that's, that's the gist of it programmatic cash flows. I, I guess we got one, one thing from Marco. Yeah, I have a consideration. Um, so I'm Marco Delpierre from Interlock Ledger and a Swiss-based uh, startup, by the way. When we come across discussions around blockchain, um, I'm one of those believers that uh, um, uh, next generation of blockchains are, uh, are, are moving away from the actual dependencies, as, as you mentioned before, I mean, the actual fuel effect uh, dependency on the performance uh, of that token. So there are blockchain which has been built uh, uh, specifically for that purpose. Uh, I wanted to actually ask um, ask the um, panel is uh, what do you think of um, next generation of blockchains and whether there's really are, um, we're, we're moving away as we should away from really dependency of the blockchain for the sake of the cryptographic algorithm and the data dependency dependence on the performance on the token in order to actually perform and uh, as as we are seeing actually happening with the next generations and I, I, I think we have we saw the first generation of Bitcoin uh, first generation of blockchain and that was with Bitcoin I think we're still at the second phase of blockchain third is is we still haven't fully proven the second one yet like ethereum 
is saying they're moving to proof of stake. That's still not proven yet. Yeah. Uh, and what bothers me the most is you have new projects coming up and saying we have 10 trillion transactions per second. Who's using it? Two people sitting in a, in a room. Vayani, it's, uh, unless it's proven at scale, it's not anything noteworthy. So in terms of next generation blockchains, I'll, I'll give you an example. When we tried to speak to our CTO about building our own blockchain, he's like, listen, this is a stupid idea for now because you still don't know what the requirements are. You don't know what the parameters are going to be. Uh, so for now, it's better to keep experimenting. So when we, when we develop a smart contract, we mainly put it, or we always put it on Ethereum mainnet. But we take that same smart contract and type, try, to, try to implement it on Corda, Hyperledger, Neo, and, and other types of blockchains so that you can see how each smart contract fares in terms of speed, cost, complexity, privacy. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, we're still far away from third-generation blockchains. We're I, still... I think that in terms of the, the fantasies, just one point, the, the fantasy that everyone has, what, how blockchain could change the world, uh, the genie's out of the bottle. So I, I just think that whatever way we'll realize that the vision that we collectively as a blockchain ecosystem have, um, whether it uses blockchain or, you know, a quantum type of blockchain in the future as long as it sort of adheres to the, the principles of programmable money and cross-border transactions and sort of you know smart business logic then it's not the question of you know block which generation it might be just you know what what next technology will enable that right it could be blockchain it could be an improved form of it which we might call something else yeah go on george i'm george um I work for a $107 billion startup somewhere in China, <laughs> um, operating globally. Um, a few things that just a little bit on wisdom, at least from my short little life in IT. Uh, first, I think uh, we have gone through probably three generations, Bitcoin 1.0, Ethereum 2.0, which added the smart contracts and a few other things. I think we're beginning with 3.0, but it's still in the early steps. But it's like in... Uh, yeah, it's like uh, Windows, you know, it takes three generations to actually get some version of it that has worked quite correctly. The, the second thing I think is important, although we always come back to financial transactions, tokenization, exchanges and, and all, I think blockchain is much bigger than that, M much bigger. Because, yes, the first natural implementation is one associated with finance because it, it is geared and it fits that purpose very well. So I think we have to look beyond just the financial applications, although those are, are the natural ones. I think the third point that I think important when we look at blockchain, let's go seek any implementation of blockchain. What do we see? What's the percentage of contribution of blockchain in the whole application is being developed? You see it's about 5%, maybe 2%. So why we call it even blockchain? And I think that itself is a showstopper because if I'm a user, I don't care if it's Bitcoin or blockchain. I care about the application that is some business purpose. So I think we sometimes focus too much on the technology. So it's really the business that is going to actually, or the implementation in a useful business case. And I think when we reach a few of these, the rest is self-explanatory. I think manufacturing is at the top uh, industries. There's the Gartner report that recently came out, and manufacturing is by far the largest industry that would... Benefit. There's too many fake parts of, especially airplanes and other things. Yes, food. <laughs> uh, just a following up. Uh, so this is Ashton. Uh, I'm, I'm part of Innovation Lab uh, in Phantom um, Australia. So to his, uh, you know, 
is comment. Basically, what we are looking at at this point is kind of like a financial transaction, anything to do with what we see today. However, I've been in this space for a while, so the way I, we think it, it, the cryptocurrency right now is people think cryptocurrency as an investment or like a money monetary thing, but actual value will come from real use cases where you know you use those um, tokenized into machine to machine kind of a um, interaction it could be a real use case so if you're thinking about going beyond uh, planets um, you know bringing another two billion people to the economy that's where a lot of uh, new adoptions will come in mm -hmm. who here uses who here holds crypto or has crypto do you, okay, healthy. Do you, do you guys, do you guys and girls keep your crypto on exchanges or wallets? Wallets. Nice. Very good to know. Very good to know. What wallets do you use out of the? Uh, if you trust, trust wallet. Okay. And who, who's invested in the ICO here? Nearly half. Who's in, who's lost money? Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'm just making, oh, I'm easy. making sure that nobody's lying, you know. <laughs> who did it? Yeah, <laughs> who did it? Oh, <laughs> yeah. Hi, my name's Fatma. I have no idea about anything with regards to this um, distributed ledger technology. I've been researching on it since 2015. And I find that we haven't moved anywhere. Now, I'm going to talk about a real life case study that I've got. I've got access to 50,000 acres of land in Tanzania. And I would like to be able to take this land into the technology, DLT, and be able to create a crowd investment fund for local farmers and get the worldwide community to have shares in the farm. Now, I'd like to be able to take the same case study here in the GCC. I've got a case study here with me where I would like to have a similar concept where we have local organic farms direct to cloud kitchens where we don't have restaurants but actual women who actually require to earn a living. We don't have access to funding, don't have access to getting a license for kitchens, etc. Fast forward, what we want to do is get the organic farms, a crowd kitchen into everybody to be able to use your actual currencies on a day-to-day -day basis, whether instead of buying food from a restaurant, you actually go onto this community and buy from a woman who requires it. You feed a family and you feed yourself. And at the same time, this technology can work. So I'd like to know if I have this case study, I have these assets, I have 5,000 farmers with me who are willing to try this who do I go to? Who can I meet? Who can create this platform? I've got an asset worth 70 million US dollars in Tanzania. I don't know who to go to. I've got a charity here in Abu Dhabi that can focuses. Talal, are, you, are you available? <laughs> so, uh, who can I speak to here who has the technology? They're willing to speak, yeah. Okay, so, I'd like to know who to speak to. I even have created, I've even created a marketing strategy for the, uh, the Imarati one, and the cloud kitchen is called Haltik Masha. Okay. This comes from a very old Kuwaiti series that I grew up walking here in Imarat. Yeah. So, I'm trying, uh, you so I need, I have the strategy, I've got the whole thing, I see it. I just need people. To help my us. impartial advice: yeah. speak to absolutely everyone. I've spoken to you. Go on. <laughs> yeah, go on. And then make your decision. I think everyone in this room would love to work with you, but I think the devil is in the details. I'll give you one example, one of the similar stories. So a couple of years ago, we had a 
guy by the name by the name of Abraham come here and pitch the same thing in our world blockchain uh, challenge. And his idea was he had access to solar panels. And he was somewhere in South Africa where he wanted to build for a village or a school solar panel. And he wanted funding to be done uh, using cryptocurrencies. And at that time, it was only Bitcoin. He came here and he won one of the top three. I'm not sure if it was first, second, or third in our global challenge. And he only got like maybe $10,000 as a price. But what he gained actually more than that is a lot of investors and visibility in Dubai, where he's coming now this year for the third year, I think, in a row to Dubai, where he's actually built a lot of successful uh, deployments in South Africa and other places in Africa, where he actually builds the solar system, charges the people of the village for, for the electricity that this solar system provides. And all these investments were actually from crypto. You can also invest in cash, but most of the investments were actually done in Bitcoin. I was one of the judges in that competition. I'm also an investor with him as well until today. And he's a good friend, and that's one of the use cases uh, that was very beneficial in this case. Because you have the, the, the liquidity that the crypto ecosystem provides. You have the use case where you actually need it, and you need actually uh, distributed ledger technology to actually enable not only the the uh, tokenization of the land or, or, or the asset, in this case, the solar panels, but also you bring in the, the ecosystem where there's a token exchange, and it's a perfect ecosystem for something like blockchain technology. Beautiful and, idea, but I think there's one particular challenge that you need to cross in order to get this to work. So today, one of the biggest issues in tokenized assets is linking a token with the ownership. Let's say today we do fundraising for this project and we get $100 million. And we say everyone that holds a token owns X percent of this land. Let's say you own the land. And all of us here, we invested and we own the tokens. To do that, you need, you need the land department of Tanzania to accept tokens as mean of ownership. So it looks good, uh, to be honest, from the, just the basic information that we have. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it looks like you've done your homework. I think they like both of us expressed here, the village and the small little details. I think technology is the least of your concerns. I think the other economic model and things like that needs a bit more work. Like you said, this is an impact business. You're not looking to make profit. Profit is not the end, you know. It is the, the end of the day. It's an impact-based project. And there, there's a lot of them here in the region, a lot of them on, in the whole world. For example, uh, we do here in Dubai, I'm involved actually in uh, something called the Donor Project, which is a new called Hayat, which is uh, or organ donation, but the database for organs and recipients are all on the blockchain. And that's basically an impact business. We're not making any money from that. But there is profit, and that profit is only to sustain the business. We're not putting anything in, my, in our pockets, basically. And we need a lot of those, and those are the perfect use cases, actually, for blockchain technology. Some of the best use cases are impact businesses, and where you can bring liquidity from investors into things that otherwise will not have liquidity, you know? So I think, uh, yeah, it's only a matter of getting connecting with the right people, with the technology-wise, but I think it's not a big thing. And uh, there's a lot of people that are more than happy to help you out with that. Yeah. Th thanks a lot, Fatima. I think um, there's, like Dr. Moran said, there's plenty of people that you could tap into. I think what 
one more. Yeah, go on. We have Jason as well. Yeah, yeah I'm uh, Mohammed Salman, Block Premier for two years now. Uh, I have a, like, a comment on Prem's question and also something to add up for George's comment on the application of the blockchain and the mass adaption of the cryptocurrencies. So he asked about the tokenomics layer is at the moment is missing part when it comes to the enterprise application of the blockchain. Yes, it is the case, but there is a reason for that. There is a, like a taboo of any kind of a tokenomics, a tokens, cryptocurrency with the enterprise people. They just take two steps back when they hear this thing. But for the blockchain, they have acceptability to listen and of course to adapt as well. So currently what the use cases are in the enterprise blockchain scene, yes, they are using it minus tokenomics. But down the road, definitely that layer of tokenomics will come into the play. So one of the use cases which will uh, help the mass adaption of the cryptocurrency that tokens as well is the associating the rewards system of companies like Huawei or maybe even a smaller size. Once they will start getting their rewards and even the salaries, which is a use case of uh, tokenomics layers within the enterprise blockchain application or private blockchain application. Once these type of use cases will start rolling out in the market, we will definitely see more uh, adaption and consumption as well. Are you referring to the use cases where like, as an employee, you get paid half of your salary or a percentage of your salary in a crypto? Mm -hmm. um, these are the kind of use cases you're Like referring? when we say rewards or performance management system, it covers like the rewards of uh, all types. At the same time, the compensations as well. Those compensations could be the commissions, the salaries, or any kind of a service charges which you pay off. So these are the application areas you have. To, and this will come through the enterprises, large enterprises. Mm -hmm and they will give it to their employees, which will be num in number of thousands. They will go out in the market to pay their bills, to buy their groceries. Exactly, so that, that was my next question. So even if you have that in place, but you don't have anywhere to spend it or any way to trade with it, or like Dr. Morris said, use it, don't you see, I mean, I'd love to hear your thought because you've looked into that, but let's say Huawei decides to pay their employees like 20% in Bitcoin, mm -hmm. and then, what happens next if you don't have the ecosystem that supports Bitcoin? The ecosystem has to be evolved. And it's a chicken and egg situation. We have to create the both together, but at the same time, like it will be a regulator which will play the role first. Uh -huh. Great. My name is Nick. I'm from Nasaba. I'm going to do something crazy. I'm going to say something more far out and crazy. I think the big application is going to be virtual environments. <laughs> because in a virtual environment, which if you take social media, it is your virtual environment. Nothing in there is real apart from a photo you've taken, but then that's a digital version of Not even that. something you can't even own anyway. So you own the photo, but you don't own the thing you took a photo of. Well, that's that's truly your digital own Digital scarcity, thing, right? I mean. Sorry? Digital scarcity, just like CryptoKitty. Exactly. But the, mm. with technology, the way it's moving on, AR, VR, and all that sort of stuff, you, when you create something in a digital space, it's 100% yours. Let me ask you a question. Do you own mana? Mana? Yeah. No. <laughs> Mana's good. <laughs> so, uh, uh, mana is a, a currency for a virtual platform where you can actually buy digital land. And if you haven't done that yet, then I don't think we should talk about this. <laughs> it's called Decentraland. I'm a very fast learner. But I, the, reason I, the reason I bring this up is that um, almost every under 30 person, maybe 25, they probably won't own a car and they probably won't own a property. 
So what assets are they going to tokenize? Uh, digital assets, like I said, that's why I asked you. Yeah. If you are in that age category. I'm not in that age category. I'm, a, <laughs> I'm as much in age category as you can imagine. Um, looks young for his age. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> it's just, uh, I would say it's genes, but it's not. No, okay. So, so I'll give you an example. So this mana uh, is a currency that the currency fluctuated, but not as dramatically as, as people think. It's, it's lumped with all the other digital currencies, but the value of land within mana land, or whatever it's called, <laughs> went up dramatically, still goes up dramatically, because... Digital scarcity. So even in virtual world, you'll have the same issues you have in the real world, where digital scarcity is there. You know, control of 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 assets and creating new assets. All the tokenomics that we talked about earlier, whatever applies in the real world, will apply again. And and the, the yeah. it may not be centrally governed, depending on the environment. Mana centrally governed. The issue depending on I don't know about mana, whatever. <laughs> virtual environments. Mana, mana. Virtual environments will definitely happen. But I think it's important we get away from like the Sims mode kind of buying digital land because what can you use digital land for? Oh, a lot of things. <laughs> <laughs> he obviously owns a lot of digital investor, land. Guys, an investor, guys. <laughs> Maybe that could be a topic have, we, for next time. We have to take into consideration that people are paid for their energy. It's their own proof of work, right? So you get paid in dollars because today that's what your company pays you in. But if you're working with someone in Australia and you're in some virtual, it could be Upwork.com or any of these places that just choose to switch payment from being on a fiat-based system to something else, that's where you get the critical. Every day, every day people work and they get paid in something. So if someone can create an environment where you work virtually, then that's different. Everybody does do it. It's Upwork and all those platforms, but they're still being paid by US dollar. All they need to do is make that switch. There's one in the Middle East called Yurid, who are yeah, trying to compete with Upwork. Who adding crypto to that sounds like a very logical thing. Yeah, and there's a lot of game developers. So uh, we had a game development uh, conference about a month ago or so in Dubai, and we had a whole track just talking about tokenization of different, you know, virtual assets, mixed reality, we had in-game purchases, we have in-game gold, uh, we had cross-game transfer of value, cross-game transfer of characters like crypto kitties, you can transfer your crypto, cute crypto kitty into a character in a horror game, for example, <laughs> or otherwise, you know, utilizing uh, a certain aspect of this crypto kitty as a, a special power. You know, and the breeding of crypto kitties and things like that. There's a huge, a huge potential. What the, what the amazing thing is, whenever you look at all this spectrum of use cases of crypto, you rarely see gaming. But gaming is one of the Take biggest one, yeah. potentials, actually, and the easiest to implement as well, because you can, if you are in a digital environment, you know, in the case of digital land, you can prove it easily because it's digital. You don't need to transfer a real life you know, a deed to a digital deed. It's already a digital deed anyways. Mm -hmm. And it prevents people stealing accounts, it prevents people stealing gold, doing all these mischievous things inside the game. By doing blockchain, you actually provide an ecosystem where it actually provides this audit, provides this security layer as a bonus. You're using it for, you know, token economics, you're using it for all the, all the other things, and you're getting all this other stuff as added bonus. You know, so it is a very easy use case. It is a very straightforward use case. It doesn't make, you know, any sense not to do it within games, but yet the gaming 
uh, developers. They are, you know, don't even know it exists. And the ones that are that know about it now, they're not using it to its full potentials yet. A lot of them are very positive. This and they, when when I saw this in Dubai, I was really impressed. Even the big names like Steam and others. I don't want to drop names again, uh, but. They were using those platform in a certain, you know, limited use cases because they're still playing around with it. But imagine if, if the gaming, you know, whether it's mixed reality, whether it's, it's cost, you know, digital assets or whatever other aspects of the game, it is really, really beneficial, really, really early days, but it has the biggest potential in any other sector, I, 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 I can tell you. Even for streaming, streaming media, like gaming, yeah. like e-gaming, like any other streaming, it's huge. Not only games, you can use it for, you know, like there was a lot of projects with uh, live broadcasting of events, you know, yeah. and things like that. There's a lot of use cases for streaming. Uh, these are also another low-hanging fruit because, again, it's digital. You watch it, you can prove you watched it and things like that. Well, one more comment from Jason and we'll the, the final topic. Yeah. I, I'll just touch up on, because funny enough, you know, before Bitcoin, because I've been playing like online virtual games and currency since 2000 on a, on a digital asset basis, you know, I was able to generate two, three hundred dollars when I'm, you know, a day via my, you know, virtual business, um, selling virtual money and virtual items. And, and then funny enough, you know, in 2010, when I got hacked, I lost everything. So... You know, I was in California with negative three thousand dollars in debt on credit card, and that's how I've got into bitcoins. That's that's how Vitalik started. Yeah. So you're the Chinese Vitalik. Yeah. No. <laughs> so so but but one of the things I'll talk about blockchain, right? Because I, I see blockchain like you know, and then you know, three four years later, I, I you know, when you first a few years discovering Bitcoin, one of the biggest thing you discover is holy crap! Like we have the power to create money. Right? Because when you get hacked, like when you have, I mean, to me, it was like $100,000. It was like my life, like for 10 years. Right? I spent 10 years building that and it's just gone. So when you when you hit that moment, you realize, you know, the company can't help you. Nobody can help you. You're on your own. You know, that that's what really drove into like the whole decentralized, okay, finding that money that can't be hacked. But one of the key drivers is having the power to create, you know, that's when similar to the times, you know, the first altcoins start coming out. People began creating alternative currencies. So when we create cryptocurrency, the, the premise of Bitcoin was to unbank, uh, to bank the unbanked people. Because majority of the people, I mean, we live in a very sophisticated, you know, city with banking and all of this. But there's so many people, and I don't know exact percentage, they don't have access to modern financial banking. So one of the key things I think that I, that I realized the big problem, number one was the fees, right? The transaction fee model of miners and mining, what you have the biggest problem is the consumers, the end users and the miners. I've been a miner, so I know their interests will never be aligned. Miners are spending massive amount of money into hardware and you know trying to make more Bitcoins. They're not trying to make it cheaper, easier, and faster for the users. So Bitcoin would, I, in my opinion, Bitcoin would never be this like peer-to-peer cash that you know the vision that Satoshi had. But rather, it's a dream. Decentralization is about choice, right? I never, I would never imagine you know Bitcoin to be the only coin that we ever use today. I think that's kind of too extreme. In terms of creating cryptocurrency that drives use, you need uh, the model should be based on, you know, the fee. Like our thing, we're not. Ba- my model is not based on creating, you know, transaction fees. In fact, the transaction fees that we incurred to all of our users since, you know, last 
almost three years, is less than five cents in transaction fees. Because I believe the model of creating a sandbox in which the value of the sandbox increase, but, but of course you can't do free transactions with people, they're gonna spam attack you. So I think the key thing is about the innovation in the next generation blockchains is, or cryptocurrency isn't really just about how fast your tech is or how amazing it is. It's really about tackling real world problems. And I think for majority of the people on the planet, you know, they can't afford to spend two, three dollars for a transaction. It's just not affordable. I, I, you reminded me of a um, really interesting uh, concept that was developed in, in London. It's um, called Sweatcoin. I, I initially thought it was a scam, but it's, <laughs> it's not. Um, but it, essentially, you get rewarded these sweat coins just by walking. So the more you walk, the more coins you um, you get you get rewarded. But the thing is, with this, you can't withdraw the, these this sweat coin, nor can you deposit, nor is it tradable on any exchange. And they've just said, we're not using a blockchain, it's just a loyalty sort of token. Um, but the idea is that they've they've partnered up with so many different fitness product providers um, where, where if you accumulate enough of these sweat coins, you could potentially purchase a Fitbit, an Apple iPhone, whatever it is. And I, I, and I feel that is something, if we're really talking mass market, like really global mass market, it's solutions like these that, you know, I mean, there's no customer that has to actually think about a, a private and public key. It's just all in, in the app. Um, and again, of course, it doesn't conform to the thesis of owning your own money and being a private bank, but you know, the, the world still doesn't know the the, the benefits of, of owning Bitcoin. So we can't go from sort of from here to there, you know, overnight. I think we should go to the final topic. Maybe this could be a, <laughs> this could yeah. be a, a quick one because we actually... Yeah, well, I'll make it quick. Actually, I mean, talking about the startup scene, I would like to start in Dubai and I'd love to hear um, a couple of inputs from the audience as well. At Dubai, we always strive, and specifically when it comes to the blockchain strategy or blockchain endeavor, we want to be the world capital of blockchain. So have we done, has Dubai done it so far? Are we there yet? How far along we are? I think Dubai has a good ecosystem, and I'm sitting right next to an example here, a startup. Where it is good for the technology side, it is good for raising also, but it's not the ideal place to raise fund, but it's good for incubation, good for ecosystem support, good for a lot of other parts of, of uh, getting your startup up and running. If you are a UAE local, you have much more facilities than you would if you were not a UAE local, but that doesn't mean that you there are no startups that are not done by locals. There are a lot of startups that are launched from Dubai, and they do much better than startups that are done Absolutely. by locals, to be honest. And that's because Dubai has a very international vibe to it. There's developers from all over the world here. There's the ecosystem of living in Dubai. It's very pro-expat. And I think there's a lot of government programs and a lot of incubator programs in Dubai that help startups start with a very easy you know, entry point. That doesn't mean there's zero overhead or zero pain points. There are always those. But I think it is much better than you know, the alternatives out there. What does... What defines being the blockchain capital of the world? You have investment, mm -hmm. you have projects, you have developers and community. I think that Dubai has tried to establish itself as one of the blockchain capitals of the world, but I do think that Singapore and Zug are definitely number one and two. 
which order I'm not sure, and San Francisco is probably ahead as well. Mm-hmm. Dubai caught blockchain very early on. 2014, they launched the blockchain strategy. Um, 16. 14. 14. 16. 14. 14. 14. 14. 14. 14. Okay, wait, wait. Sorry, sorry. The Dubai Blockchain Council. Oh, yeah, yeah. Was, was informally launched 2014. The blockchain strategy, I agree with yeah. you, 2016. Council, yeah. Which I'm not a part of, to be <laughs> So, has, it, has Dubai succeed? I'd say partially. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot of potential, but it didn't reach the potential yet. Okay, great. In terms of experience, how, what would you say is still missing? You need an anchor client. You need an anchor tenant that is living and building in Dubai. Don't tell me consensus because consensus come here, charge fat fees and bounce. Ooh. <laughs> uh, but, but what did Crypto Valley do? They got Ethereum Foundation to actually come set up offices there. Mm-hmm. They eventually bounced to Singapore, but still that led to many other companies going into Zoog and registering there. What ADGM have done, what DIFC are doing with the FinTech Accelerator, these are the types of initiatives that convince the likes of promising startups, let's say, to come and set up shop in the Middle East, and specifically in Dubai. Great. And, and, and the biggest differentiating factor in Dubai is that it's a top-down approach, which invites the public and private sector to all take part. Mm-hmm. If you go speak to ESCA, if you speak to a bank, everyone knows that at the federal and state level, there is a push for blockchain adoption, so that will only fuel people's interest. And I think one of the key things here also is access to the regulator, access to, you know, even expertise, access to coders. You get really good talent pool over here in Dubai as well. No matter if it was AI or blockchain, you have experts from all over the world with different disciplines, different even price points. And you have also access to developers from all over the world. There are a lot of companies that do a lot of development here out of Dubai, but they're actually coders are sitting in India or Poland or Denmark or whatever, Eastern you know, Europe as well. Australia and other places. Tax, 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 man. Dubai is a great place to come and set up shop. If you compare it, to, for example, New York, if we wanted to establish our company in New York, we would have had to pay federal, New York City, New York State tax, and that would have eaten up a lot of the funds. Mm-hmm. But that's why I think Dubai definitely has a competitive edge. Uh, I would def- I would agree with all points, but maybe against I haven't seen the development side really take off like um, yeah. like its peers. So Singapore, Zoo, um, so maybe Zurich, London, San Francisco, of course, have that talent pool that people could sort of really tap into. I think the region is still trying to get to that point, mm-hmm. but of course the resources are already there for for to easily deploy to India or Poland. But uh, the best thing is when you actually have the developers side by side building. And I think that's that's the next phase for sure. That's lacking for sure. Yeah, yeah. and I think it's a, a huge potential actually for startups to be based out of Dubai. I think the ecosystem will grow with you. We are in Dubai supporting you know all startups to come here. As you can see, there we have a lot of startups here coming from Australia and we had a lot of startups this week and today actually coming from China as well. They are all trying to base shop out of Dubai because of the network that effect that we have here. Yes, we, we might be missing a yeah. lot of the developers, but that 
could be taken also as opportunity. I didn't find any problems in my startups to find talent actually for development of blockchain projects, but that's not true for everyone. Everyone is looking at different projects, different you know implementations. So what they're looking for could be different than what I'm looking for. I developed also an Ethereum, Hyperledger, and others, and. Personally, I haven't found a lack of talent, but like I said, ITAP external resources as well. So we don't mm -hmm. do all the development here in the country. We do some of it here, some of it overseas. Anyone from the audience would like to share? I just wanted to get your opinion. Uh, talking about startups, I agree that uh, it would be great to see, you know, I mean, actually anchor uh, company here been uh, uh, set up in Dubai. Sometimes, I mean, what, what I see is that obviously company startups, they uh, particularly in in the domains of uh, innovative technology, etc., they want to make a name internationally, etc. But uh, but you start by doing business in the region when you actually, you know, I mean, incorporate, and the UAE is not a particularly big market. Somehow, this is why perhaps there is a tendency to go sometimes elsewhere. So how do you see startups being, being, being supported to actually not, not just doing business in the UE because they are supported and I can say there is a lot of support and uh, initiatives around it, but is that enough for a startup per se by definition to actually be also supported uh, elsewhere? I, I definitely think that Dubai, even though the market here might not be big enough, look at, and I'm ex-PWC and I tell you that I used to be shipped to Saudi a lot. If you ask any consultant, wallah, it's true and it's, it's, a, it's a positive thing because from Dubai, okay, if I wanted to convince a top-class scientist to move from San Francisco to the Middle East, where would he move to? Dubai. And then he would probably be put on a very high-paying project in Saudi, which is the same thing you can do based out of the UAE. Another thing is you have zero VAT tax on anything you sell to foreign entities. But you could base yourself in Dubai and target the whole world. Uh, it's, I wouldn't agree that it's a restriction. Black, it's an advantage. Black means you know, on the continent. <laughs> <laughs> it's easy to say black. Yeah, of course. We have like one audience member here, two or locals, others. <laughs> maybe three <laughs> Arabic speak. Any other experiences from maybe startups or people who work with startups that you want to share? So, so far, I have like about forty blockchain startups. And out of these 40, I want to say that 30 of them have asked me or actually have established operations in Dubai. So this is something that shows that there is like a huge interest in this region. Maybe also like Dubai, you can say geographically it's located between strategically west, yeah. located between the east and the west so it's like bridging you know asia with the, with the west and i want to ask this to um, you guys maybe marwan and talal i do my job as a pr person by giving like making the media talk about startups and facilitating the interest in blockchain but from your side how is the big corporations uh dealing with it, who sees you as a competitor, and how is the government, is the government basically really providing like the support? Are they like, they know that this is a decentralized world and it's gonna defy the central bank. So is it really, as it says in, in the news that, you know, we are being friendly to blockchain, is it, and are the big corporations like opening their hearts to this? I, I cannot mention names, but we are in a lot of the projects here in Dubai working with big corporations without naming names. <laughs> so the big, big, you know, blue chips and things like that. I don't want to mention names again. You already did. <laughs> 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 uh, 
you know your chips, you know who they are. Yeah, we 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 work on small projects, and actually that's under the umbrella of of Area Twenty Seventy One or the cohorts here or any other you know incubator kind of or accelerator kind of based of setup. I think Talal is the same when he was working initially in Dubai under accelerators, under these programs where you actually help you and guide you and handhold you into getting your product to a mature level, getting funding even, a seed round kind of funding, even exposure in the media using firms like yours, for example, and things like that. You know, the ecosystem is there. The government tries to help you out. Uh, I'll give you an example. So in the early days when I started doing blockchain, people didn't know what blockchain was. And I started with law enforcement, like the Dubai police, because they had cases involving uh, Bitcoin. But then I started traveling with Smart Dubai. They invited me to go explore about blockchain uh, you know, projects around the world, especially in Europe. And every country I visited, I realized that this is not really blockchain. <laughs> Almost all of them. Some of them were not really good blockchain projects. And I started informing the government, this is not really blockchain. They're just marketing it as blockchain, but it's not real blockchain. And they realized very quickly that, okay, we don't have the experience or we don't have the right, you know, talent mm. in Dubai where we can actually recognize what are blockchain projects, what are viable projects that we can use straight away, what are really hard to do problems with blockchain, and it's easier to do in other ways. And this is where we realized, okay, education is really important, and they started doing a lot of initiatives, not only for blockchain. We realized even when we were going on, on trips to China and, and, and to America, visiting companies like Google and others, we realized that we are really in the region lacking uh, talent when it comes to AI, lacking talent when it comes to blockchain, and we started doing all these local programs, even in cybersecurity. So my specialty is cybersecurity. And we realized if you don't visit the world and if you don't travel with like-minded people, it is very hard to discover what you're missing. Your perspective is different than Faisal, different than Talal and Ahmed and everyone here in the room, right? You will look at things for only from your perspective, but you can hear what he will say about what he thought about this company, you know? And we went to Southeast Asia, Malaysia, China, Singapore, and we can see what are their strengths and what are their weaknesses. And based on that, we start to build an ecosystem here with our limited capabilities, you know, and reach and, and richness of, of, of the contacts we have to building educational programs, awareness programs, competitions, all kinds of ecosystem supporting, even funding, raising, creating ecosystem for raising funds for these guys. Even if sometimes we couldn't raise funds here, we did road trips for, for some of the projects going to Southeast Asia and the Americas and Europe and that kind of stuff. So whatever we could support our startups, we did. And we're continuously creating more you know, initiatives like Talal mentioned, Fintech Hive is now the most active one, which is out of DFC, but ADGM was also one of the most active and still is. I have a company also in ADGM for healthcare, and they are very, you know, healthcare and, and medtech uh, kind of uh, oriented. So each, each area in the UAE targets a, a certain niche and tries to really capitalize on those companies, support them which, in whichever way they can. And this is, I think, what's ex what is exciting and makes this region very different. Like the support from the government, the support from everyone in the ecosystem, whether it's the banks, it is the finance people, it is the government regulators, everyone in the community itself as well. It's a very diverse com uh, community and they help each other out. And if I can add to that before we close, I mean, at Smart Dubai, one of the 
three pillars of our blockchain strategy is the ecosystem enablement, and that entails us to support the startup ecosystem. Uh, we actually have a database of startups, and being as a, if you can say, the custodian of the strategy, when government entities approach us to say, for example, who could we speak to that have expertise in that area when it comes to blockchain, in financial transactions, in supply chain, and so on, we actually share with them these databases. I mean, everyone knows the, the big players out there, but not everyone has access to these startups. Not everyone knows how good these startups are. So at Smart Dubai, we do share this regularly. And we also invite them as well. I mean, one of the activities we've done when it came to the blockchain implementation policy is that we invited the startup ecosystem to hear from them as well. So I would say, yeah, I mean, there's certainly room for improvement and engagement more. The startup, the blockchain challenge, global challenge as well is one of the activities. But I would say we're doing a good job when it comes to the government as a whole to involve the startup because we understand, like Dr. Moran said, that these kind of innovations will most probably be coming from one of these startups. I mean, the big players are out there are doing their thing, but the startups are really playing a major role. I, I totally agree with Faisal. I mean, I was also part of the, the, the implementation policy that Smart Dubai facilitated, and it's something that really sort of empowered most of the startups that, that were there. I think because of time, we yeah. have to end this. Like, I'm sure there is, we didn't even touch, we didn't even talk about investment figures <laughs> and stuff. I guess that's for, for next time. But first of all, I want to thank Dr. Marwan and the Dubai Blockchain Center for sponsoring this event. They, they're the ones who brought the, was it Flow, right? Yeah, so they Flo actually brought a second round of food, so we we are open to network for another half hour to an hour. So like thank Bilal and Faisal as well for contributing, and of course all of you guys for for coming to this event. If you guys really have any feedback or anything about this, please let us know. We're gonna make this um, bigger and better. And yes. yes. Make and sure great encrypted. <laughs> make sure you go and subscribe. And if you haven't subscribed. Make sure you do it now. We'll probably, we should check everyone's phone. <laughs> yeah. And if you subscribe, then rate and review. And if you've already done that, then go on your friend's phone and rate and review from there. <laughs> so there, there has to be an action point from every single person. <laughs> and if you're an egoistic person like me, you can go and listen to yourself and feel good about it. <laughs> yeah. So All thank right. you very much, guys. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you very much, guys.